For the week of May 1st, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, in the wake of the Mueller report's release, or at least in its redacted form, we revisit the issue of impeachment and the many questions surrounding it with constitutional lawyer Ron Fine. He is author of the book, The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. That's all ahead, so stay with us. So since the release of the redacted version of the Mueller report, there have been renewed calls for the House to begin impeachment proceedings. So I thought this would be a good time for us to revisit our interview with Ron Fine. Fine has been an adamant proponent of impeachment and has been asserting that there are ample grounds for proceedings to begin, irrespective even of the scope of Mueller's investigation, starting with Trump's violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution on the very day that he took office. In all, Fine lays out eight charges in the book that he co-authored called The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. So I started our conversation by asking him about the framers' intentions around impeachment. It is, of course, prescribed in the Constitution, but in his book, Fine says that the point of impeachment is not to punish, but to protect the body politic. I asked him to explain. A lot of people understand impeachment as something that would happen at the end of a criminal prosecution or criminal investigative process. And that certainly can happen, but the purpose of impeachment is actually to protect the country. And a Supreme Court justice who wrote an influential early commentary on the Constitution in in the 19th century uh, by the name of Joseph Story uh, put it really well. He said that impeachment is not so much designed to punish an offender as to secure the state. The point of impeachment is that somebody represents an ongoing threat to the, the republic. And that's why we remove them from office. Yeah. I mean, it's it's actually rather ironic that uh, there is a clip that has been circulating around of Lindsey Graham when he was a congressman making virtually the same point about the impeachment proceedings regarding Bill Clinton, right? Yeah. And I think Lindsey Graham was absolutely right when he said that. He said, and this is 1999, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said the purpose of impeachment is not to punish but to cleanse the office was his his phrase. And I, I think that's an important point when we talk about Trump, because we're not talking about somebody who committed some sort of one-time violation that's never going to happen again. This is not a, a single one-off incident. What we have here are patterns of conduct that are not only continuing, but getting worse. Well, you're sort of uh, getting into uh, my next question naturally, and that is what you talk about in the book as being the threshold for impeachment, which, as prescribed again in the Constitution, is treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, Treason and bribery, I think it can be fairly argued, have already been committed by Trump. Uh, But you assert in the book that uh, high crimes and misdemeanors don't necessarily have to be criminal offenses. Uh, You cite, among other people, Alexander Hamilton's writings on this. So help us understand why high crimes and misdemeanors do not necessarily have to be violations of federal code. The phrase high crimes and misdemeanors leads a lot of people to think in terms of criminal statutes, but it can actually be broader than that. And the framers didn't invent the phrase. They took it from the history of impeachments in England, where parliament had impeached officials for hundreds of years using the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. That was the term they used in England for things that were not actually what we would call now crimes, that the terms didn't mean the same thing then as they are now in common usage. And if there was any doubt that the framers 
intended high crimes and misdemeanors to include things that are broader than uh, just what we would call violations of, say, federal criminal statutes, it would be dispelled by the fact that the framers in the constitutional debates actually give examples of impeachable offenses that were not crimes. And such some as. of them, such as abuse of the pardon power. Abuse of the pardon power is one of the grounds that we've actually laid against Trump. Yep. And in the constitutional debates about it, uh, there was a, a debate between George Mason, who was an opponent of the Constitution, and James Madison, who's the father of the Constitution and, and later became a U.S. president. And George Mason said uh, that the president shouldn't even have the pardon power because it would be subject to abuse and he could pardon people close to him, maybe people like Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort. <laughs> Sheriff uh, Joe Arpaio, Dinesh D'Souza, e others. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I've become a monarch. And James Madison said if he does that, then he can be impeached. But obviously, abusing the pardon power, that's not a violation of any, you'll find no federal criminal statute that directly prohibits that. It's an abuse of a power that the president has, but shouldn't be allowed to abuse. And that's that's just one of several examples where the framers said that. But it, it's not just what the framers said. We also have history of Congress impeaching officials, and it's mostly federal judges more than presidents, but Congress has impeached federal judges or, or started impeachment proceedings against them, again, many times for things that weren't crimes as we would now understand them. I'm going to want to revisit that point in just a moment. But so let's go ahead and get into the book and the eight charges that you lay out. Um, and a few of these are, are things that we've heard before, the, the violation of the emoluments clause, as I mentioned, um, obstruction of justice, specifically in the firing of James Comey, uh, you just touched on uh, abusing the pardon power. Uh, another charge is advocating illegal violence violence and undermining equal protection of the laws. Give us some examples of how and where Trump has transgressed here. Absolutely. And, and this is one of the grounds where, you know, with some of these grounds, you can point to something that uh, either a previous president uh, was charged with, like Richard Nixon, or you can find some clear constitutional precedent that this is an impeachable offense. Here, there isn't, but that's partly because no president has ever done what Trump has done here. So, if you go back to the campaign, Trump's rhetoric the entire time has been advocating violence. During his campaign rallies, he urged his supporters to beat up protesters, and he encouraged a, a level of uh, violence through his rhetoric that actually had a measurable effect. There have been studies on what they call the Trump effect on how during his campaign, when he made a, an appearance at a rally in a particular city, there would be an increase in violent incidents and, and in racial incidents in that particular city as compared to before, after, and other cities. But a lot of people said, well, once he's president, that will quiet down. And it didn't. Since he's been in office, he has urged, for example, he urged police officers to be rough with people that they arrest. Yeah. So he's basically encouraging police brutality. And of course, we know what happened with Charlottesville, where he talked about the, the very fine people on both sides and encouraged that sort of racial violence. Again, he, he didn't specifically say, go out and drive a car into a crowd and you know murder a protester. But that's that's not necessary. The point is, with his rhetoric, he, he inspired and incited. And, and those are just a small number of examples that when you put them all together, add up to a pattern 
of violating his obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed and to ensure equal protection of the laws. You know, you also cite uh, undermining freedom of the press. And of, of course, freedom of press is uh, it's, it's in the, the First Amendment. And I'm wondering, is the violation of something that is that is codified in the First Amendment, does that give it special weight uh, in this regard? Well, you know, what's interesting about the way that Trump undermines the freedom of the press is that he hasn't instituted, you know, direct censorship. It's right. not like he's, you know, banned the New York Times or something. But he'd like to. <laughs> I'm sure he would love to ban, uh, you know, CNN, fake news CNN, as he right. calls it. Um, but what he is doing is is following a pattern that's been set by strongman rulers in other countries that have slipped from democracy into authoritarianism. So it's a pattern that we've seen from from Turkey, from Venezuela, some of the Eastern European countries, where a constant attacks on the media have a chilling impact. And it's not just his his rhetoric, uh, you know, constantly calling the news you know, the fake news and saying you can't believe anything they say. He's also either threatened or tried to use the levers of government to punish the critical press. And as you say, the freedom of the press is enshrined in the First Amendment. It's sort of a central American value because some of the other freedoms are obviously vitally important, but you can imagine democracy going on even if those uh, values are are threatened. But without a full and robust press, uh, the, the institutions of democracy themselves are threatened. And in fact, the Senate actually issued a resolution saying that attacks on on the press are a threat to our democratic institutions. You know, the, I will just mention uh, the other charges uh, from the book. You also include uh, directing law enforcement to investigate and prosecute political adversaries, uh, recklessly endangering the world and the nation by threatening nuclear war. Um, and so, again, I, I, it is a matter of debate as to whether these institute high crimes and misdemeanors in and of themselves. But a point that you make in the book is that all of these things taken together form, quote, a pattern that turns individually troubling acts into a dangerous abuse of office. This is something that you mentioned earlier. And, you know, I, I just want to play devil's advocate and ask, isn't this more of a matter for voters to determine? You know, impeachment was set up in the Constitution to handle a case where a president was of such danger that it, it couldn't wait for voters to, to handle it. But also the flip side of that is, I don't know if we want to say that voters can ratify um, gross violations of uh, the Constitution and, and fundamental rights. I think that the key issue is that Congress is the entity that the Constitution entrusts to put the ultimate check on the president. And to say that, well, we're just going to wait until election, you know, obviously for a second term president, that's not even an option. But even for a first term president who, who is going to face reelection, that exposes the country to a degree of danger that we try to make the case uh, is is too much. It's it's too great a risk for the country to to take on uh, the ongoing threats to our democracy uh, and, and potentially to safety of the world uh, if somebody insults him on Twitter and he, he starts a, a nuclear war as a result of that. Yeah. Well, and and of course you you'll get no argument from me, and you're not going to get any argument from listeners. But again, just sort of following this through and even transmitting forward. 
if high crimes and misdemeanors are not defined concretely, does it leave in your mind the possibility that any Congress that could be hostile to a sitting president might be moved to drop articles of impeachment? I mean, I think it's fair to speculate that, say, if this particular Congress uh, had had a Hillary Clinton presidency, they likely would have found uh, grounds to drop articles of impeachment. And so I guess my question is moving forward post-Trump, do you see the impeachment of Trump under the high crimes and misdemeanors bar being something that could be subject to, say, abuse by a Congress that just simply doesn't like the actions of, of a sitting president? Yeah, I mean, there, there is this this view that uh, Gerald Ford, when he was in Congress, said um, when he was actually looking to impeach a Supreme Court justice, where he, he said an impeachable offense is whatever the House of Representatives decided is at a given moment of, of time. Uh, and you can imagine hypothetically as a, as a theoretical case that there might be a Congress that would do that. Um, we haven't seen that happen. Um, and the, I think the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors is a useful one. It's, it's not to say when I say that high crimes and misdemeanors don't have to be federal crimes, that that doesn't mean that just anything can be uh, a high crime and misdemeanor. There, there have to be serious offenses. Uh, one of the constitutional scholars who wrote about impeachment during the uh, Nixon era, I think, uh, described it as something that was plainly wrong to a person of honor regardless of words on the statute books. So it's a mix of law and politics. And if Congress takes its job seriously, uh, then they will insist on a minimum threshold. And, and one thing we do know from the constitutional debates is that uh, the, the framers of the Constitution considered at one point whether a president should be impeachable for what they called maladministration, basically meaning, you know, just like being bad at, at his right, job. Right. Right. And they they took that away. They deleted that because um, the framers felt that would mean that the president would serve at the pleasure of Congress. And so everyone agrees that sort of ordinary bad presidenting is not a ground for impeachment, you know, I don't know mishandling the economy, that type of thing. That really is a matter for the voters. The, the threshold is certainly higher than that. And there are many things that, you know, people get very upset about against Trump, rightly so. Um, that we haven't included in this book because we felt that they did fall more in the category of of maladministration. Uh, but you know, in this book, we're trying to make the case of why these offenses do rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. And quite frankly, if any other president does this in the future, I think they should be held to the same account. You know, this sort of gets into uh, what we were talking about earlier in terms of the. High crimes and misdemeanors not necessarily needing to rise to the level of a, a criminal offense. Uh, and one of the final charges that you raise uh, that would absolutely be a clear violation is conspiring to solicit and then conceal illegal foreign aid to a presidential campaign by a foreign adversary, which, of course, is the subject of Robert Mueller's ongoing investigation. And what you're hearing from a lot of members in Congress, particularly Democratic members of Congress who are up for re-election, is that they're saying they want the Mueller investigation to be complete before they talk about impeachment. You disagree. Uh, so talk about why. I think what's important to understand is precisely because the purposes of impeachment are, are different from that of federal criminal prosecutions. That's why these are separate processes. And what is important to understand is that there are some technical issues that will face the special counsel uh, that are not relevant to impeachment. And, and I'll give you a, a couple of examples. Um, 
he has obviously he's only focused on uh, really two of the eight grounds that we've mentioned. So it, it goes without saying that six of the eight grounds that we talked about, for example, emoluments violations or abuse of the pardon power, those aren't part of his investigation because they're they're not federal crimes at all, right. and they're not within the scope of his uh, of his appointment. But then. The other thing is that he's got to face some technical limits on, for example, what he can prove in federal court. So as an example, uh, trial lawyers need to deal with the federal rules of evidence, which are rules that address what types of evidence can be presented to a jury. And there's reasons, various reasons, sometimes good or bad, why relevant evidence cannot be presented in court because it's not consistent with, let's say, the rule against admitting hearsay. Uh, this has no bearing on Congress. And if Congress has relevant evidence, then it doesn't need to worry about whether Robert Mueller thinks he could persuade a unanimous jury of 12 you know, random citizens of uh, D.C. Or, or New York or wherever um, that he could uh, bring charges, you know, at the level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt in line with the federal rules of, of evidence. So we've presented enough evidence in this chapter for Congress to start the process of hearings. That doesn't mean that uh, they might not get you know, additional evidence from the Mueller investigation. The Mueller investigation is basically conducted in secret. Uh, congressional hearings can be conducted in the open. Congress has basically all the same investigative authorities that Mueller does. So it can uh, call witnesses, it can subpoena testimony, documents. And if Congress was doing its job, it could be moving in parallel with the Mueller investigation, and then his decision as to who to charge for which crimes could happen in parallel or separate from Congress's question about the big picture issue is not the letter of the law of the federal campaign finance statutes that uh, Trump may have violated, but rather if there's enough evidence to suggest that the president has conspired with operatives of a foreign government uh, to illegally gain assistance in an election, that's a, a real serious concern, regardless of what Mueller thinks about whether or not it's uh, criminally prosecutable. I know that you and your co-authors believe that Congress should be uh, – they should be introducing articles of impeachment now. They should be holding hearings. But we recognize the fact that this is not a Congress that is not only going to not do that, uh, they're also not going to hold Trump to account on virtually all of the charges, on any of the charges really, that, that you mention in the book. And uh, now I know that you are a, a 501c3, and so you're, you're, you're going to have to kind of be careful about the way that you answer this. But And it is a political question. Uh, but there has been some debate about whether or not Democratic candidates should run on the issue of impeachment, because if, and God willing, when the Democrats take back the House, there's then the real possibility that articles of impeachment could be introduced. The Democratic base seems to want it, uh, but pol it polls less well among independents, and the Democratic leadership is counseling candidates to avoid the issue. Do you feel that this is a fraught issue for Democrats, that they uh, should or should not be running on the issue of impeachment when it's so important? As, as you say, I'm you know not able or in a position to give you know advice on on anybody on how to campaign, win or lose their election. But what I will say is that impeachment is on the ballot uh, for both parties, whether they want it to be or not. It's a, an issue that is high on voters' minds. 
Uh, polls show it to be uh, you know, fairly high as, as a priority among many voters. And one thing to note is that uh, right now, public support for impeaching the president is a little bit less than half. Depending on which poll you look at, it's you know in the high 40s, the mid 40s. It's less than 50 percent, no doubt. But if you compare the public support for impeaching Trump now, at a point where Congress has done nothing, nothing, they haven't started any hearings whatsoever, and if you look at the public support for impeaching Richard Nixon at the same stage of the process, or even at a later stage of the process, there's more support for impeaching Trump now without the first hearing being started than there was for impeaching Richard Nixon when they were well into the Watergate process. Interesting. And in fact, the support for impeaching Richard Nixon didn't cross 50 percent until after the House Judiciary Committee had already approved articles of impeachment against him. So I think that you know the mixture of law and politics here is important because there'll be times when the politics predominate, but there'll be times when the law and the facts predominate. And when hearings start, it acts, and again, Nixon is the model for this, it acts as a national education process. It will bring in people of both parties, Democrats and Republicans, who maybe haven't paid attention to all the allegations, maybe they've been you know, too focused on other things on, on cable news, to find out if they're sober, serious hearings that show members of Congress you know, hard at work taking it seriously, not making it into a, a circus, uh, at getting the facts out and debating whether certain offenses are or are not impeachable, and that is for Congress to decide, that will be a national education process, and I think it would bring the country along, Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Lawrence Tribe actually wrote a piece against the bringing of articles of impeachment precisely because he feels that it would be uh, inflicting undue trauma on, on the country right now. And uh, I, I'm wondering what your your thoughts are. On that, we didn't have to endure that under Nixon. He resigned. Uh, we did have to endure that under Clinton. Uh, Clinton's numbers actually rose uh, when he was impeached, but not convicted. I'm wondering what you make of all of that, particularly Lawrence Tribe's uh, assertion that this would be traumatizing for the country. I have great respect for Professor Tribe, as, as should everyone who, who works in this area, and uh, I, I enjoyed very much his a recent book, uh, which is sort of about the generalities of impeachment, not specifically about Trump. And, and one of the points that he makes in his book is that uh, starting an impeachment process has downsides for the country. But on the other hand, there are cases where not impeaching a president has downsides for the country. And it, it, there might be some trauma that comes with impeaching the president. There's a lot of trauma that comes with not starting the process. And, and we're, we're starting to experience some of that trauma. Some people are experiencing quite a lot of trauma, and it is likely to get worse. Well, we're going to be talking about that actually next week, listeners, so stay tuned uh, for that. Um, so I, I will just ask you, um, sort of transmitting forward, if Trump is successfully impeached and convicted, what does the Constitution say about the terms of removal? And the reason why I ask this is because Trump seems like the sort of individual who may possibly refuse to leave office. What does what the Constitution prescribe there? Well, that that is actually an argument for impeachment. The very fact that Trump <laughs> is, does seem like the person who might refuse to leave office 
Um, Lane makes out the case for impeachment uh, in all all in one little vignette of, you know, the Senate voting to uh, convict and him, you know, barricading himself in the White House and having a a showdown with U.S. Marshals or something. I mean, that would be a constitutional crisis. You know, people say, well, impeachment is a constitutional crisis. Impeachment is following the procedures of the Constitution. Yes, you say, actually, uh, the person who wrote the foreword to your book, John Nichols, says uh, that impeachment is not a constitutional crisis. It's the cure for a constitutional crisis. That's right. And uh, I think, you know, if we can envision a scenario with the president, you know, refusing to leave office, I I think what I hope would happen uh, is that uh, Vice President Pence and the the leaders of the House and Senate would come to him and and say, you know, don't make a spectacle of this. Um, You can leave with, you know, some measure of dignity um, and not have to be brought out by armed guards uh, and and avoid that type of scene. Um, But Yet again, I, is, 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 I think, a mental picture that is, is very cheering to the minds of a lot of listeners. But anyway, please continue. Yeah, um, I, I would like to see him walk out under his own power um, and, and face For the whatever. good of the country, ultimately. Yeah. yeah, for the good of the country, exactly. And in fact, you know, as we say uh, in the book, um, it's fine with us if he resigns. Um, we don't feel the need to, to go through the entire congressional process. Uh, Richard Nixon resigned from office after the Judiciary Committee approved articles of impeachment, so he was never technically even impeached by the House um, because he, you know, he saw the, the writing on the wall. You know, the procedure specified in the Constitution is that the House has a majority vote to impeach, which is really laying the charges, and then the Senate has a vote uh, to convict, um, and that does need to be by a, a higher threshold by by two thirds. But uh, the Constitution says that it shall shall be removed from office uh, on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, It does not say how they will be removed from office and and whether that would require um, armed law enforcement agents uh, extracting the president from, you know, a locked up, barricaded Oval Office. I hope it wouldn't come to that. Uh, You know, when you wrote this book, uh, I imagine that you had to know that you were writing it in a very fluid environment. And of course, since then, since the publication, a number of things have happened, including uh, Michael Cohen implicating Trump into felonies in open court and then the conviction of Paul Manafort. Uh, We're getting into uncharted territory here. And there's there's a lot that's unclear around this. And so I I hope that you'll just indulge a couple questions here in your capacity as as a constitutional expert, because listeners have asked a few questions regarding what's going on. Um, You know, and you talked about this a little bit in an op-ed that you and the two co-authors of your book, John Bonifaz and Ben Clements, wrote for the New York Daily News on August 29th regarding Michael Cohen. And you say that looking at Cohen testifying that Trump ordered him to use campaign finances to pay off uh, two women that Trump had affairs with simply as a criminal matter to be resolved is missing the whole point of impeachment. Now, you've talked about this a little bit earlier, but I'd love for you to expand on a few of the points, a few of the other points that you made in that piece. Yeah, I, I think the, the issue with what happened here is that if people get mired in looking at campaign violations as a, a technical matter, um, they might miss the, the big picture, which is that the, the president directed uh, Cohen, who until recently was his personal lawyer, um, to not only basically you know, cheat in the election by making these um, illegal campaign payments, but also the Trump organization helped conceal it. And when you put this picture together, what we see is that the, the president is 
uh, really it shows his disregard for the rule of law from the outset, from the get-go. And if he was willing to do that uh, in 2016, when he didn't have some control over the apparatus of law enforcement, um, didn't have the ability to punish his adversaries and critics the way that he does now, uh, then he's only the more dangerous nowadays. And I think that we're going to continue to hear new revelations. There will be new evidence about things that have already happened, and there will be new things that will happen. And when we put these all together, the, the key point, as I said, is that it's not like this is a one-off violation where the president did one thing impeachable once and then repented of his ways and forever afterwards stuck to uh, the Constitution and the law. <laughs> this is a case of a president who is going further and further uh, off the course charted out by the Constitution. You know, it does beg the question, and point taken on all of that, uh, but the fact that this is a court matter makes one wonder, and, and Robert Reich has, has discussed this in an online piece, that if Trump is proven in court to have conspired to have fixed the 2016 election, that de facto makes that election fraudulent. And he calls not for just impeachment, but for the annulment of Trump's presidency. And there is, of course, no mention of this in the Constitution. But do you agree First of all, do you agree that annulment is something that the Constitution would allow for? The Constitution definitely does not provide for uh, what I, I understand um, uh, Professor Reich to be talking about in, in terms of annulment. I mean, as, to the extent that he has been president, um, the actions that you know were undertaken by the president uh, in the course of his duties uh, would not ordinarily be reversible uh, upon impeachment. Now, there there is a... Uh, a, a missed opportunity that if the um, Congress had gotten started on this when it should have, which is to say, uh, you know, immediately after he took office, uh, we might have had a lot more uh, information that could have enabled impeachment to have occurred before the 2018 election. And believe it or not, the principle that um, when the uh, presidency, let me back up for a sec, I should say, we don't know whether Vice President Mike Pence uh, has been or, or will be implicated in any of this wrongdoing. Um, and we do not in this book or elsewhere uh, claim that there's a case for impeaching Vice President Pence. But we also don't rule it out because he was obviously involved in the campaign. He was also the supervisor of the transition when many of the key incidents occurred. So it is possible at the end of the day that we'll find that Pence has also committed impeachable offenses. And then that's a really interesting question um, for Congress to to inquire is whether the, the sort of pain of, uh, you know, displacing uh, one president through impeachment um, is uh, worth uh, repeating. And a lot of people do feel justifiably that if the offense was um, conspiring to illegally influence the election, uh, that it isn't quite right for Mike Pence to to then you know enjoy the benefits of of Trump's impeachment. But at the moment, we have not set forth um, because we don't believe there's publicly available uh, any case 
uh, that would suggest that that Mike Pence should be impeached and removed. Yeah, I mean it's it's very interesting because annulment could potentially include uh, getting rid of Trump's executive orders, even getting rid of his cabinet. Uh, again, uncharted territory here. Um, you know, I, I will just ask one last legal question, and it is the eight hundred pound gorilla, and I'm sure you know what is coming. But uh, since Trump is now an un- unindicted co-conspirator in two felonies, uh, which would most certainly be prosecuted if he weren't in office. We have heard legal experts differ on the question of whether a sitting president can be indicted, and mostly because it's just it's never been done. What's your take? This is something that the Constitution does not explicitly answer. And I should say at the outset that there are people of good faith and solid standing on both sides of this question as to whether uh, a sitting president can be indicted or whether they are you know, immune from indictment until they're impeached and removed. So anyone who's claiming that there's perfect certainty on this is being misleading. I, I think that the better view, though, is that a sitting president can be indicted. And part of the reason for that is that some criminal offenses are not impeachable. So we talked about how high crimes and misdemeanors includes things that are not crimes. By the same token, it doesn't include all crimes. There are things that are criminal, but that are not grounds for impeachment. You know, let's say the president, you know, minor tax evasion charges, or I don't know if he goes drunk driving um, and, you know, commits DUI or something like that. Very few people would say that's a ground for impeachment. Hmm. Uh, And some of those things have statutes of limitations. So to say that a president could not be uh, indicted while he remains in office would mean that he could basically escape liability forever for crimes, either because they're not grounds for impeachment or because uh, Congress chooses not to impeach him. He might forever escape all liability for that type of crime, even if it was a crime committed before he took office, a crime that occurred, you know, during the campaign or even years earlier. And I don't think that's structurally a sound result that you get a forever get out of jail free card if you manage to make your way into the Oval Office. Well, you know, there was talk about uh, prosecuting Nixon after he left office. And of course, uh, you know, Gerald Ford's blanket pardon there just made redundant all of that. Um, Would you personally like to see uh, Trump prosecuted if he leaves office without being indicted? Would you see a situation where you would like to see him uh, face criminal prosecution for some of the things that he's done? Now, this is a really interesting uh, question for which the, the Ford-Nixon president is a useful one. I mean, as we were talking about earlier, when let's say the vice president, Mike Pence, becomes president after impeachment uh, and removal of the president, he has the opportunity to take that in a lot of directions. So he could, you know, as you say, like reverse Trump's executive orders and fire all of his cabinet officials. Um, he could also say, I'm going to you know, keep that ship going straight. In terms of the pardon power... There's no question that a somebody who became president after the impeachment and removal or resignation of the president um, would have the power to pardon that president. Uh, and I, I don't think that would count as an abuse of power. Uh, I think that would be a, a legitimate use of it. I would advocate, however, um, that Pence not do that. I think that Ford's pardon of Nixon uh, cut off really uh, exposing uh, accountability. And part of the problem was he he, uh, pardoned him before charges were even brought. 
Right. And perhaps if you know it, it had gone further down the process and there was a trial and a conviction and then he said, you know, in light of his service to the country for years, I don't know, maybe commute his sentence or we might have some precedent camp. to work with here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it, I think he cut it off far too early. Um, I, I'm not saying that Pence wouldn't have the power to do that, just as Gerald Ford did. Uh, and that's obviously a, a political decision for him to use. And, and, you know, reasonable people can disagree on this. I think it would be better uh, to allow the criminal process uh, and, and all legal processes, for that matter, against Trump to proceed. But uh, again, I, I can see how other people might not agree with that. Well, I thank you for indulging us on all of that. So, you know, in the book, you say that there are things that we can do to help along the cause of impeachment. Um, Voting, of course, is one of the biggest things that we can do. And we uh, sort of beat our listeners over the head uh, regularly with that. Um, But uh, I I always like to end on some form of action whenever possible. And so uh, with your organization, Free Speech for People, what do you recommend that uh, people can do uh, along these lines? We have a, a couple of steps that we're recommending. Uh, the first one is I would love for people to read the book, um, whether from their local bookstore, from the library, online. And the reason for that is that there are a lot of misconceptions going on about impeachment, partly driven by leadership in Congress. And for people to be able to have this type of conversation that you and I are having right now with their friends, family, and neighbors, and to say, no, there actually are grounds for impeachment hearings right now, and to be able to refute some of the uh, common arguments, like we have to wait for the Mueller investigation or something like that, for, for people to have that confidence to make that argument with their friends, with their family, and with their member of Congress, to, to call a congressional switchboard, uh, especially if their member is on the Judiciary Committee of the House, but even if not. And again, to advocate with letters to the editor of the local newspaper uh, and, and other ways of, of getting this message out. We're, we're in early stages of this. We're still at the point of trying to um, you know, to build the movement and the support. Um, we're not suggesting that Congress would hold a final vote on articles of impeachment tomorrow, but what we need to do is convince enough Americans that this is something that Congress can do. The other thing that people can do is that they can visit our website that we've set up specially for this effort, and that's impeachmentproject.org. And from there, uh, you can look at some of the tools and action items that are available even now. But I think step one uh, is to familiarize yourself with the arguments and be a confident advocate. Well, we certainly appreciate your time here in helping us uh, understand the issue uh, of impeachment uh, a little more clearly. And I will certainly recommend the book to readers. The book is The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump on Melville House Press. Ron Fine, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that is it for this week. As always, you can find all of the information about the show that you require at indivisiblepodcast.org. The email is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. Thank you guys as always so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.